are now going to have one more spotlight conversation um, with George Sojin to talk about payments and faster payments. Please join me in welcoming him and please give him a very big round of applause. He is my boss. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lydia. Your rays will reflect it. Uh, and thank all of you for uh, the opportunity to speak uh, uh, to you about uh, bringing faster payments to the people. My, that is the official title of my talk, but the subtitle, for reasons that will become clear enough, might be A Tale of Two Payments Systems. Now, fast retail payments, my subject, involve two parts. There's a f the front end of the fast retail payment, and that consists of a fast and convenient way to initiate payments, to get the payment system, uh, to have a payment initially uh, uh, undertaken. Then there's the back end, which requires fast and convenient completion or settlement of the payment. To, to give you an example, suppose I owe somebody uh, 25 bucks, and I write that person a check. As far as the front end of things is concerned, as soon as I hand over that check, I've initiated payment and I'm done. The transaction, from my point of view, is complete, but isn't complete for the recipient of the check because the check still has to be deposited and the recipient has to get credit for it. And even then, it's not complete for the banking institutions involved because the bank that receives the check assuming it's not the bank on which the check is drawn, has to send the check back electronically, at least, if, if not uh, literally, to the uh, bank of, on which it was written. And ultimately, there has to be a settlement between the two banks. And only then is the payment truly complete. So uh, as we'll see, making retail payments of all sorts fast at the front end of things is relatively easy, and the private sector has come up with all sorts of ways of doing it. The tough part has been making the back part, the settlement, the completion and settlement part fast. Yet unless payments are settled quickly, the delays and the, with the extra risks that they entail can harm payers, payees, and service providers alike with the poor tending to suffer disproportionately. My thesis today is very simple. It's that the private sector is, in fact, as good as capable and as good at meeting the back-end part of the fast payments challenge as it is at meeting the front-end part, if only we let it do so. And I plan to illustrate that thesis by telling you a story. Actually, two stories. One is very old, and the other is happening as I speak. Yet, the stories are remarkably similar, and they teach similar lessons. The setting for the first story is Boston, Massachusetts, just about 200 years ago, 1819. Now, that era's popular high-tech front-end payments medium consisted not of checks, but of circulating notes, paper notes issued by various state chartered banks. 
They look a lot like the Federal Reserve notes we have today, but they were the products of private uh, uh, banks rather than any government institution. Now, notes were an efficient medium of exchange in many respects, more efficient than lugging around gold or silver coins, for example. But in the U.S. context, at least, they were at least they weren't a perfect medium of exchange. In fact, they were flawed, and that's because while they were okay near to where they were issued, near to the banks that supplied them, when the notes traveled any distance why they would no longer be worth their full value in gold or silver. There were discounts on the notes reflecting the time and trouble it would take to get them back to their sources for settlement, for payment in gold uh, or silver. And uh, uh, this was a result, I hasten to add, of laws against branch banking. Had there not been restrictions against branch banking, there might not have been a problem of so-called non-current banknotes, and there would not, therefore, have been a non-uniform paper currency in the United States, as there was everywhere at this time. Now, uh, as a result of the difficulty of getting notes back to their sources, not only would they fall to a discount far away from their issuers, and I mean that a note that was supplied by a bank in Orono, Maine, once it got to Boston, might be subject to a 2 or 3 or even 5% discount. A whole business developed, the business of note brokerage, where the brokers would offer to buy notes of various banks at various discounts and take responsibility for completing, as it were, the payments process by getting the notes back and settled in gold or silver. So initiating a payment in this system was relatively easy. You couldn't do it uh, without being in contact with the payee, like today, but you could hand over a banknote, and you could do so even when the note wasn't worth its full value. And indeed, uh, uh, but the problem of completing the payment was very real. It was a slow process or an expensive one or both, because the recipient of the note, assuming that they weren't near the bank that supplied it, had to either arrange to send the note back to its source for payment in silver or had to deal with the note brokers and eat up the cost of doing so. This was particularly hard on merchants in Boston and elsewhere who ended up eating the expense rather than refusing business, much as merchants today accept the expense of uh, dealing with customers who use high-fee credit cards. Well, the setup was also annoying to the banks of Boston, because as far as the bankers there were concerned, having all these country banknotes, referring to notes of other New England banks, circulating at less than their full values in Boston, looked to them like business being taken away from their good banknote, uh, uh, from uh, being e eating at their market for banknotes. So... Uh, the Suffolk Bank, founded in 1818, decided to do something about it. And what they did was at first to try to stage note raids on these country banks, accumulating their notes and trying to redeem them all at once. But in 1825, they offered them an alternative. They agreed to accept the notes of any country bank at face value, 
returning the notes on a regular basis, provided that the bank in question established a pre-funded redemption balance with the Suffolk Bank. Uh, the balance would be $2,000 or more, depending on the bank's size, and as settlement took place, as the, fund, as the Suffolk drew on that balance, it would have to be replenished by the bank in question. Some country banks opposed this setup, but ultimately it proved very successful and nearly all New England banks joined. And as a result, New England got the first bank clearinghouse in the entire country and the only uniform currency in the country because from that point on until the Civil War, all New England banknotes were worth their full value everywhere in New, New England. In just one year, 1858, the Suffolk cleared $400 million in banknotes, which is uh, uh, approximately equal to clearing the whole quantity of notes in New England 10 times a year, and it did so for a very small price of about 10 cents per thousand. It was, in short, New England's and the country's most efficient payment system at the time. The setting for the second tale is New York City today. Now, today's high-tech payments medium is not banknotes, of course, but private digital dollars transferred using plastic cards, mobile phone apps, computer keystrokes. So unlike paper notes, no contact is needed between payers and payees, and that's a nice improvement. Apart from old-fashioned wire transfers, uh, private providers today offer all sorts of fast, relatively fast digital payment options. Besides debit and credit cards, you have PayPal and Google Pay and Apple Pay, Venmo, Zelle and Square, and some others, each of which has its unique virtues and is good for, especially good for particular kinds of payments. And they're not just fast, relatively, they're fast and they're cheap and they're often more reliable than legacy payment systems. PayPal for online shopping, Venmo for sending money to your friends, Apple Pay if you use an iPhone, Google Pay if you've got an Android phone and a Gmail account, Square if you don't want to have uh, a separate account as well as your bank account and so on. But these payments, fast payments providers, don't generally offer fast back-end services. On most of these systems, it takes two or three days for accounts to settle. And therefore, the risks of older-style payments are still present, albeit not as great. Zelle is the one exception. It's run by a consortium of banks. And in, in that system, funds are instantly available to the payees but even on Zelle, final settlement takes a day or sometimes more if you've got weekends or holidays to deal with. So banks, in that case, are exposed to some risk. My second tale is that of a new back-end fast payment system, the RTP for real-time payment system, developed with the Fed's active encouragement by another consortium of private banks called the Clearing House, or TCH for short. Now, it just so happens that TCH began life as this nation's second ever clearing house after the Suffolk system in New York in 1853. 
The specific challenge that our, the RTP system is designed to solve is that of achieving a ubiquitous or nationwide fast settlement system that bank and non-bank providers of front-end uh, fast payment services can take part in. RTP's basic workings are very similar, in fact, uncannily similar to the workings of the old Suffolk system. Any bank can participate, and non-bank service providers, assuming they don't have a special purpose national bank charter, can appoint a participating bank to serve as their agent. Participants have to pre-fund balances held in a jointly owned RTP account of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York with pre-funding requirements based not on their size, as in the Suffolk system, but on their anticipated activity. As the balances are used, the banks have to top them up again, this, in this case by transferring funds from their ordinary Fed master accounts to the RTP joint account. Settlement of payment orders between RTP participants that is, the customers of those participants, takes place instantly, and it does so 24-7 through debits and credits to and from individual balances in the joint account. The system also allows payment orders to be accompanied by messages and information concerning, for example, what the payment was for, payment confirmations, and that makes it especially attractive to businesses that can save a lot of money on resource management costs. So we have seen some progress, after all, since 1819. But the picture isn't entirely rosy. Just as the Suffolk system met with resistance from some small country banks, so RTP has met with resistance from some smaller community banks who don't like the idea of having to pay a big bank TCH consortium for fast payment services. But the truth is those services are very cheap. RTP has a flat fee structure that actually favors smaller banks. There are no volume discounts, there's no volume commitments, and there are no monthly minimums. And I think the fee per transaction is, for the sender, 4.5 cents, uh, which is very competitive with other fast payment systems or now equivalent to other fast payment uh, settlement systems in the world. Um, the Fed rules, in fact, probably wouldn't, if strictly enforced, allow it to make as good a deal as RTP does because uh, by the rules of the Monetary Control Act of 1980, the Fed can't cross-subsidize its payment services, though it does so all the time, to be frank. <clears throat> the Fed, by the way, could make this system even less onerous to small participants especially, but to all, by allowing interest on RTP's joint account balance, which is something the Suffolk Bank never did to its members. They had to keep their balance of 2,000 or more dollars and never got a nickel for that. Instead, the Fed has thrown a wrench into the RTP works. Last October, it yielded to pressure from community banks by announcing it was considering establishing its own back-end real-time gross settlement, or RTG, system to compete directly with RTP. And this mere possibility of the Fed's entry into that space has had a chilling effect on RTP's progress. It had about 50 or 60 percent of all uh, bank at, bank, banks by assets in its system 
uh, as of a, about a year ago. I'm not sure where it's at now. But many banks now are playing wait and see because they don't want to sign up with RTP and then find that a rival system has made it uh, desirable for them to switch. So the Fed's potential entry into the uh, fast payment and settlement space will probably delay achieving a fast retail payment system, a truly fast system, for at least a year. And then, of course, if the Fed does enter, uh, which will probably take it that long or longer, it'll be four or five years for it to get its system up and running with no, as far as I can tell, no clear gain in payment speed or efficiency. But the Fed's entry could have the opposite effect, especially by discouraging future entry and innovation in the back ends of the fast back end of the fast payments business. Back in 1866, the federal government nationalized the nation's paper currency, abolishing former state-based currency systems, both good, like New England's, and bad. Uh, this, of course, uh, is uh, an old story. The uh, national banking currency that followed was perhaps one of the most flawed currency arrangements in the United States. It gave rise to frequent crises that culminated in the Fed's establishment. And the national banking system collectively didn't redeem as many notes in 10 years as the Suffolk redeemed in New England only in one. Well, as some wag uh, 19th century wag put it, and it probably wasn't Mark Twain. History may not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. Thank you very much. Take more than one question at once. I see what, two all both in the rear row. Uh, Aaron Klein, Brookings Institution. Thank Hi, you. Aaron. Thank you, George, for setting the importance and value of clearing and settlement in a deeper historical context. Uh, my question has to do with the income inequality aspects of this. Uh, the Federal Reserve and others have argued that income inequality is one of the biggest threats to our current society, uh, our economic well-being, our social well-being. Uh, uh, it's pretty easy to see very quickly how $35 billion a year of overdraft fees, $25 billion of payday lending, $7 billion of check cashing, which are all fees borne exclusively by the low-income folks, predominantly by those that have bank accounts. Nobody pays an overdraft or gets a payday loan without a bank account. So it's not a financial inclusion issue. Yes. Uh, why do you think the Federal Reserve has the regulatory authority to mandate real-time payments? for all institutions uh, uh, under the Expedited Funds Availability Act. They also have uh, the uh, bemoan income inequality, and we can debate whether their monetary policy plays a role in that or not. Why do you think if the Fed thinks income inequality is such a big problem, and they have this giant regulatory tool 
to help fix it, transferring tens of billions of dollars a year. Why do you think the Fed isn't uh, acting on what they say is a core problem? Well, actually, Aaron, I, I think they have acted on it, and I actually think they did the right thing. Uh, if only they would keep on doing the right thing, because what they did was in 2015, they formed a faster payments task force. Now, one might, one might argue they could have done this earlier, but anyway, 2015, they said, yes, we need to do something. But what they chose to do was not to s simply order somebody to come up with a faster payment system, uh, whatever doing that could possibly mean, or, and they did not choose to then and there to implement their own, but they said to the private sector, who was worked private sector representatives who were part of the task force, let us come up with something. So the idea was to allow the private sector to bring innovation to the table and come up with a solution, which is exactly what the Clearinghouse did when it came up with RTP. And they did it pretty quickly because by 2017 it was up and running. So if you allow for the late start, as it were, of 2015, uh, although the Fed didn't use uh, uh, compulsion to get things moving, it did get things moving and it got a result, though it wasn't something it did itself, it got the private sector to uh, step up to the plate. The problem is, is last October they more or less put the brakes on the whole thing, uh, though they didn't claim that was what they were doing, by suddenly, quite to the surprise of, of RTP, of TCH, uh, announcing that, oh, maybe we'll get into this too. And that's what's now slowing everything down. So I, I don't really fault the Fed for not trying to compel. The problem is, you know, you can't compel this private system to come up with a solution, but you can persuade it to. And that's what they did. And that's the only way to get the private sector to reasonably uh, 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 come up with something. Because if they don't have a good idea, then what are you going to do? You can put them to jail because they haven't solved the problem, whatever. But I think, so I think they went about that the right way, but, but then they reversed course, or at least partly reversed course, and this has had this chilling effect on progress. That's it? I'm over. My red light's blinking. One more. One more. Thanks, Professor Selgin. Um, does the Fed uh, cite um, any like uh, authority, like a provision in there, like I guess the, the it, its founding act in 1913, when it comes to uh, entering this the the back end uh, clearing uh, clearinghouse space? Is there like, do, or do they just you know kind of assume that that's within their prerogative? Well, they've been in the clearing system almost from the beginning, though it was never part of their. Uh, uh, explicit prerogative back then, but they muscled in on what were a bunch of private check and no uh, uh, check mainly check clearing arrangements, uh, and took over the business using subsidies. By the way, that didn't represent the true costs. It's very good research on this by uh, former Richmond Fed President uh, ja Jeff Lacker. So, so they have been involved in clearing. That's nothing new, and and in principle. I don't think it would be a violation of their charter to, to set up an, a real-time gross settlement service. But announcing a desire to do so when a system is already up and running that seems capable of achieving everything that the alternative could achieve 
uh, is counterproductive. And that's also partly because these two systems, it doesn't pay to be a member of, of two systems. You, don't, you have to duplicate technology. You've got fixed costs. And so that's why firms have a reason to stay out because they know if the, firm, if the Fed enters, they might have to tool up all over again to be part of this alternative set of rails that the Fed will be providing. So it's a very unfortunate situation. And by the way, I think it's because the Fed buckled under pressure from some interest groups, community bankers, and also, I must say, pressure from its experts at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. The technocrats there have been pushing the Fed's uh, in, uh, setting up to set up a real-time system for a long time, and they have a lot vested in that. All right, I'm done. Thank you very much.